I finished high school and then I had about a six month gap until I was going to begin university. So I spent those six months actually backpacking Brazil and I was 18 at that time, but uh, I solo backpacked Brazil. Uh, I was visiting friends, people who I'd met along the way and many of their families were also involved in their local rotary clubs. And so I participated in a lot of service, um, uh, service projects across Brazil through these rotary clubs. And it was the combination of these two things that instilled in me a very real passion for international travel, international relationships, and a sense of um, my ability to to one day make the world a better place in some small way. Hey everybody, I'm Joe Bauer and welcome to Without a Path. Today I'm speaking with Judson Moore, who's going to be talking about his experiences of living in Kyrgyzstan while he was volunteering with the Peace Corps. Now, a word of warning, if you are perhaps listening to this on a morning commute and you've got your breakfast sandwich ready to go, maybe eat it now or save it for later because there is some audio that I'm going to play during our conversation of a sheep slaughter. Judson was telling the story about how he witnessed his first uh, sheep slaughter as part of a, a meal that some people were preparing for him and some other people. And, and it turns out he had a video clip of this. And while I he admits it's stomach-turning, and it, and it was stomach-turning for me to listen, especially while I'm editing this episode together, I thought it was gives you a little bit of ambience, for, for, for better or worse, of what a sheep slaughter sounds like. So... Just a word of warning. Now, of course, it's not all we discuss. We're not just talking about uh, sheep slaughters for for 30 minutes. Seeing as I didn't know anything about Kyrgyzstan, completely blank canvas, I wanted to start off with the basics when talking to Judson. In fact, I didn't even know necessarily how to pronounce the name of the country. So, as a benefit to all of you who perhaps also do not know how to pronounce the name of this country, we started off with a bit of a vocabulary lesson. So Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan. Okay, Kyrgyzstan. And that's um, it's not easy for everyone to get this. Uh, in fact, such notable figures as America's ambassador to Kyrgyzstan called it Kyrgyzstan. Current ambassador uh, at the time when I was there okay. in uh, 2011. And that's okay. That's not so offensive. Uh, that 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 is that flies. It's just not quite <laughs> correct, but it's okay. Uh, nobody was going to boo her for that. Uh, she was a wonderful ambassador, by the way. But what I find unforgivable was our Secretary of State at the time, uh, John Kerry, called it Kurzakistan. 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 That sounds like something somebody would have made up, like, who's best friends with Zach. Absolutely. I'm going over to Kurzakistan. Yes. Uh, I, we got a lot of kicks out of that one. <laughs> Why? Well, so... What was he... How did he make that mix-up? Was he over there at the time and... And I'm, I'm still struggling with it. Kyrgyzstan. Yes. Perfect. Kyrgyzstan. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I can go there and not offend people. Or in Kyrgyz, Possibly. we would say Jaksha. Jaksha. Is that how they call it? Oh, no. Jaksha is good. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But how do they, how do they call their own country? Is it Kyrgyzstan as well? Yeah. So th- they would have this, really, they have this really lovely accent where they kind of roll the R's in their throat. So mm-hmm. it's more like Kyrgyz. Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan, okay. Um, I can't do it quite as well as what they would do it, but mm. they they kind of they kind of eat that R a bit. It's uh, it's actually really nice. I like to hear them say it. Kyrgyz. It's interesting in English and in other languages as well. We've created more 
simpler ways for us to say countries that like in China they don't say China, but for Kyrgyzstan we've kept it. The, I, I imagine if you go to North America and you say, "What is this country?" Just show it. You're not. You're like ten percent of the people are going to be able to pronounce it. Well, it doesn't make sense uh, when you see it spelled because there are no vowels. Okay, I mean, there's an A in Stan, but Kyrgyz. Um, okay, so sometimes Y, and this is one of these examples of when sometimes Y is the vowel. Um, yeah, and when you look at it, you, you really just don't know what to do with it. I think. Yeah, no, I've I've had a anytime I've written Kyrgyzstan, which of course is often, um, I've, I've had to Google it, do the copy and paste. It's just not getting implanted there. But uh, but let's talk about the country and why did you go there in the first place? Well, so um, uh, it was a lifelong ambition of mine to serve in the United States Peace Corps. Really, lifelong? Uh, yes. Well, lifelong, uh, if life starts at 17, as I believe <laughs> it, it does. It does for some people, as yeah. I believe it does legally, right? It starts uh, right around there. So, uh, yeah, uh, I really wanted, I was drawn to the idea of being part of a program that uh, empowered you to live abroad in communities where you would learn about the culture, live with families, be really ingrained in the culture and the work there, and of course, also being able to provide people um, any type of assistance or help based on your own experiences. Uh, that suited uh, their needs. Uh, I just thought this was something that would be really worth doing sometime in life. And when I did not do this immediately out of college, which was at one point part of the plan, uh, but the plan changed. So I just assumed I would do it later in life, like in retirement, because there's no upper age limit uh, to when you can serve in the Peace Corps. There was uh, at least one or two people that served with me who were in their 70s, for example. And the next year, somebody, I think, came in her 80s. Is so, that usually the case? That So you were on the younger end, and then people who are on the older end, are they mostly going to be in the retired crowd? Yeah, I think yeah. this is most common. Uh, people come very young, 22 to 24, pretty quick after university or maybe after their uh, graduate's education. Uh, and then after that, you get a big gap <laughs> where then people come in yeah. retirement or later in life. And there were a few people, uh, there were a couple like myself, I was 27 when I joined. So I was kind of part of that vast middle age group. Um, but I had a couple years of experience and that was very advantageous to me. Uh, I think that really helped me land a more interesting work and a more interesting placement. But when I applied to the Peace Corps, I did not state any preference to where I wanted to serve. Uh, secretly my mind my only requirement was that they might send me somewhere I would not otherwise go. And so when they called me and asked if I was interested in Kyrgyzstan, I said, yes, absolutely. I'm in where? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, six weeks later, I was in Kyrgyzstan having really only uh, read the Wikipedia page on it. And uh, let me tell you, Wikipedia is not always the best source of information. And probably not for Kyrgyzstan. Probably not. <laughs> so even backtracking a little bit, you said that I'm intrigued by this lifelong aspiration or 17 on aspiration to be in the Peace Corps. What triggered that for you? Because when I was 17, I did not have such noble thoughts. So I, well, okay. When I was 17, I had the good fortune to uh, be a Rotary Youth Exchange student in Germany. And uh, I was in Oldenburg, Germany for a year. And because it was through Rotary, uh, Rotary International, and my ro local Rotary clubs, I also started to get a sense of community engagement and the type of things that can be done in the world um, when you're part of an institution or organization that's mission is to make the world a better place, essentially. And so this, this started to be the first hints that there was an opportunity uh, out there to serve the community around me or the world beyond uh, in, in some sort of 
international capacity. Uh, so I had my year in Germany, and that was fantastic. And uh, during that year, I met people from all over the world, other exchange students as well, and I met a whole bunch of them from Brazil. So when I came back to America, I finished high school, and then I had about a six-month gap until I was going to begin university. So I spent those six months actually backpacking Brazil. And I was 18 at that time, but uh, I solo backpacked Brazil. Uh, I was visiting friends, people who I'd met along the way, and many of their families were also involved in their local Rotary clubs. And so I participated in a lot of service, um, uh, service projects across Brazil through these Rotary clubs. And it was the combination of these two things that instilled in me a very real passion for international travel, international relationships, and a sense of um, my ability to, to one day make the world a better place in some small way. Especially for what I saw in Brazil is that you were, it was the first time I was ever faced with real true poverty. And the thing that struck me about that was, of course, you had these really hard conditions, but what you also had were people that lived with so little and they were happy. I mean, they were they 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 weren't ignorant. They knew that they had very little, and that they didn't have a place in the economic uh, ladder of the world. Uh, but but they took what they had, and they found happiness any anyway uh, in the small things and with their family and and in play. And I just thought that that was a miraculous thing coming, you know, being an American teenager where it was all about stuff, 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 and you know, having a shiny car or whatever. Uh, and I, I I realized that it's not just this fun thing that people talk about, you know, money doesn't buy happiness or whatever. It's, it's really true that you, you can make happiness out of anything. And so this was for me really inspirational to say, I should take the gifts and the good place that I have uh, in, in this world and try to give something back to the rest of the world, wherever that may be. And uh, through my research of what that might be, Peace Corps came up and it Definitely. Having now lived with some families in various countries and done some service projects, Peace Corps was kind of just like the next step in that. So then take us over to Kyrgyzstan. What, like, it's, it's a blank canvas for me, and I've had the privilege to do some international travel. Complete blank canvas for me. I'm sure it is for many people who are who do travel themselves or who don't travel. So what's life like there? What does it look like? Just anything. Sure. So uh, Kyrgyzstan is a former uh, state of the uh, former Soviet Union. This, is it border the Russia? No. So Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan and is then, between. Okay. And Kazakhstan is quite large. <laughs> yes. So there's a whole lot of Kazakhstan mm-hmm. between Kyrgyzstan and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, the surrounding countries are uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, China, and Kazakhstan. Uh, so this is... This is they're, they're a landlocked country mm-hmm. uh, and a whole lot of land between them and the next uh, ocean access. Um, it is known, uh, particularly by Europeans, it's, it's called the Switzerland of Central Asia because of its high mountains. Okay. Um, the, the mountains there are, I mean, well, it's a very mountainous country and the mountains just uh, loom over everything. They are massive. Uh, the the highest peak I think is some three thousand three hundred meters. Punch in here an edit point to uh, <laughs> to fact check that because um, <laughs> uh, maybe it's in feet. Yeah, I, I'm not so good with my altitudes. I'm not a mountaineer. Uh, even though I crossed over that uh, that point and that sign many times between the capital city of Bishkek and where I lived during my first year uh, in Talas, far in the western part of the country. Um, but then uh, parts of the country are arid, kind of desert like, mm-hmm. um, not not Sahara desert, just uh, just dry but still mountainous. Uh, and in the eastern part of the country, uh, there's a well known lake called Lake Issacool 
which is actually the second deepest uh, mountain lake in the world. And it's just two mountain mountain valleys that uh, that filled up with water. And I, I was had that opportunity to go scuba diving there, and I've never seen pool water as clear as that lake. It is very, very clean. And what's in there? The, just like nothing. Nothing? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. I, I saw a couple shrimp-looking fishes that were about the size of my pinky fingernail. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, uh, there used to be a lot of fish there, but it has been overfished uh you know, throughout the decades and mm-hmm. now it's it's more or less a dead lake and there's a lot of efforts to to bring life back to it so we'll see maybe there's a brighter future uh for the lake's um uh wildlife mm-hmm. but uh but it's an amazing place to go because there's beaches all the way around the lake and there's some nice little resort towns on the, on the northern edge uh that offer a lot of nice com- uh, modern comforts and amenities uh, and then what you the lake is surrounded by these snow-capped mountains year-round. And so mm-hmm. if you're facing the water, you get the beach at your toes, but then you get the reflection of the mountains further out into the water. And then, of course, above that, you get the mountains themselves. So it's a really spectacular view uh, and, and a place that everybody should try to go visit at least once in their life. Is this popular amongst the local population as well? or Yes, very much so. Yes, it's definitely a top destination for domestic travel, and it is a, it is their top destination for international travel as well. They uh, they have uh, many tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of, I'm sure hundreds of thousands of tourists that uh, come well from all over the world, but particularly Kazakhstan and Russia uh, and uh, the Ukraine, I believe, uh, okay. are their top markets. So then what was Peace Corps life like? Because I doubt, I'm, I'm sure that they didn't call you up and say, we're sending you to Kyrgyzstan to go do some scuba diving in a dead lake. No, absolutely not. That was very much the posh core side <laughs> of uh, my experience. I got to dig deep into the uh, the lint of my pockets and, you know, go have that experience. Uh, no, Peace Corps is amazing. So uh, you do get paired with an organization um, that hopefully will have needs that match your abilities. Uh, in the year I was there, one of the organizations that was requesting a volunteer was actually a community radio station. And uh, they were the first radio station, community-based radio station in all of Central Asia called Radio Most. Uh, they were, uh, well, still are, based out of uh, Talas, which is this kind of remote o- oblast uh, center in the western, uh, more desert, arid uh, part of uh, Kyrgyzstan. And uh, when I arrived, they were celebrating their fourth birthday, but they already had... Uh, quite good access to uh, the needed financing and education, training and technical um, equipment and things like this. Uh, Since they were the first and a lot of the initiative was brought in by the United Nations and the European Union Commission, USAID, Deutsche Welle and others. So they had really good connections to uh, some experts uh, in the West and they also had some uh, good connection to technical trainers from the commercial side of radio and media uh, throughout the country as well. So they were actually doing a really good job when I arrived. Um, but part of their sustainability plan as a nonprofit was to take their learnings and then, of course, to turn those into trainings for other would-be radio stations around the country. And so um, I spent a year with them mostly uh, helping them uh, conduct those trainings, plan them and conduct them. And uh, But we would always then drive uh, the four or four and a half hour drive to Bishkek, the nation's capital, in order to deliver those trainings. So after about a year of this, I was feeling, um, you know, I, it was great. I loved it. Uh, I felt like I was adding value, but I was really only adding value in this kind of every six to eight week time frame when I would go execute upon this long planning period. And I, I thought I could probably do more than this. So I had a, had a vision um, as I was seeing, training all these uh, journalists from around the country in radio, 
they were representing maybe 20 communities or so, and there were only at that time three or four broadcasting radio stations. Uh, and this has been going on for years that we're training people in radio, but there aren't that many radio stations. There's a lot of uh, barriers to entry with radio. Uh, there's technical needs. You have to have a physical, physical space. You have to have um, uh, sensitive broadcast equipment. You have to have government license. Uh, you need to have constant electricity. You also need to, um, uh, yeah, it, you, you just need all these resources, right? And it's all very expensive. So I had this idea that, you know, I was like, everybody has a smartphone of one kind or another, and they're all WhatsApping each other and their family uh, across the country or across the world. Everybody's accustomed to typing with their thumbs already. Uh, you know, cell phones can do everything a computer can do these days, especially for journalism purposes. So why don't we just give everybody cell phones? And build a website and change the medium. I mean, let's still build radio stations when we can, but we can do cell phones today. So I wrote a project basically to do this, and I got it funded. And uh, then I moved to the capital city to uh, work with a, a journalism school there called Kloop Media. And um, actually, uh, side note, a very interesting story. Kloop Media, uh, their journalism school and all of the students' uh, articles get published online. Uh, they really are a... Um, uh, kind of shaking, they, they're known for kind of shaking things up and covering stories that most people don't cover in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, but their founder, uh, a gentleman by Bektor, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, is actually now one of the uh, TED, uh, senior TED fellows uh, with uh, the TED Talks, right? Mm -hmm. They only choose, I think, 10 or 12 of these people every two years. And it was just announced that he's going to be one of these people for the next two years. Wow. So uh, they're really making waves out there and they're doing very cool stuff. And so they agreed to be the local partner. Uh, for this project that I had uh, in mind. And so we built this website, we distributed the phones, and then I left, uh, and they did all the work uh, that came afterwards, which is exactly how it should be. Don't put that on your resume. Yeah. I left, they did all the work. Well, they have to, though, right? It's not right, sustainable right. if, uh, you, if know, you keep doing yeah, it. You know, it's right. like, I can have the idea, I can get you off the ground, I can point you in the direction, but at the end of the day, this is your baby. Like You mm -hmm. have to take care of it. Bağıstan, bilimi güçlü ömünlü cihat, bilgi güçlü ömünlü cihat demek ki, bilimli olsan daima özünün südön kesimler kalıp, kalagan maksatına cetalasın. That was five years ago, and we just crossed over the 250,000th unique reader uh, of that website. They're still publishing every single day at kyrgyzmedia.com, and uh, it's all lifestyle uh, stories, local stories from the villages. Um, uh, there's almost nothing, if anything at all, coming out of Bishkek, and uh, it's really great because you get more of a sense of what life is like in Central Asia through their stories rather than the politics and, yeah. and all that other stuff, which tends to be somehow kind of ugly or partisan or whatever. Sure. So it's a, it's a really cool project. Uh, I'm very, very proud of the work that they've done. It's, so and I, I know you don't want to probably get too much into the, the politics of it, but I am curious, is there any pushback? from any kind of you know we don't want you to talk about these kind of things and you mentioned ha having to hand out radio licenses and that kind of thing well yeah of course a radio license is something you would need in any country of the world right. you just got to keep your frequencies on check and you know try going 
try applying for a radio license in America, I'm sure that's also very difficult. Sure. So you can just imagine. Um, that's just but is there any kind step. of like, we'll only give you a license if you kind of wink, no, wink, nudge, nudge. No, not, nothing that I ever heard of like mm-hmm. this. Um, I was always very impressed with the level of uh, transparency that the politicians in Kyrgyzstan would offer the media. Uh, there were plenty of stories that I have seen covered by uh, Klop and Kyrgyz media and other uh, outlets in the country that have been critical of the government or specific politicians. And uh, I've never heard of anything that was uh, particularly a big pushback. There was recently a little bit of uh, an elections, uh, digital information election, uh, election scandal in the recent um, presidential election, uh, but that's been published. And uh, yeah, of course, there's some people who aren't happy about accusations, but nobody's getting shut down over that. It's uh, there's 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 a there's really what I I feel is to be pretty um, pretty well respected freedom of the media there, um, and especially when you look at a lot of other uh, parts of the world that maybe are in in other data points similar to Kyrgyzstan uh, that don't enjoy those freedoms. Uh, I think Kyrgyzstan is uh, actually doing pretty well. Uh, every everywhere has room for improvement, but yeah, I think they're doing pretty well. Sure. And you went back relatively recently. Yeah, I was there uh, just two months ago. It was my first visit uh, back. Um, unfortunately, I did not get to get outside of Bishkek. Uh, it, I was there in November. November is not the best time of the year to uh, to try to go at least to Talas because you have to cross over two very high mountain ranges. And by November, they were already going to be pretty uh, pretty avalanche ridden. <laughs> so, so it's pretty snowy around. Yeah, there. I mean, very yeah, very snowy. Yeah, yeah, when you go over that mountain. Yeah, it's not. A, it's yeah, and they and it's not quite as snow plowed as well as you you might expect in Switzerland, right? So they they do they are lacking a little bit on some of this equipment. I made that journey plenty of times, um, so I know it can be done, and people are doing it every day. Um, it's more or less safe, sure, but um, I just didn't feel like I had to do it. And part of it was that I the reason I chose the date that I did was to actually return for a media conference. That was in celebration of now 10 years of community media work in uh, in Kyrgyzstan. And so uh, my first day back, I got to reunite with all these journalists from all across the country, including the ones that I was very, very close with and worked directly with in Talas. Uh, and so I didn't feel uh, a huge need to then uh, go back across the mountains since I did get to spend uh, some time with them at the beginning of the trip. And so, how long were you there altogether with with the uh, with the Peace Corps at first? Oh, so uh, that is Peace Corps is a twenty seven month commitment. Okay. Yeah, you get three months of in country training at the very beginning. Uh, so you live with a family during this period of time. Uh, you spend your days getting cultural and uh, language training, as well as maybe some specific job training. Uh, and you do this for three months, and during this period of time, you're not officially considered a volunteer as much as you're considered a trainee. So after you complete this pre-service training, as they call it, mm-hmm. then you're sworn in as a volunteer, and you go to your assigned site. Uh, and then that service is 24 months. Okay. And it can be extended. Uh, there were a lot of people who extended for a third, fourth, uh, and I believe you can extend for a fifth year. It just doesn't happen very often. I think a lot of people, you know, once you've done two years of this type of thing, because there is a hardship to the living and you're away mm-hmm. from home and you're far, you know, you're far away, you're not making much money and usually you're living in 
conditions that are not as comfortable as what you're accustomed to. And you get accustomed to them quite quickly. Um, in, in my case, I felt very comfortable everywhere that I was. But when I hear of other Peace Corps volunteers uh, that I've gotten to know since being back in America that were in Cambodia and were accustomed to waking up with tarantulas crawling on their Ooh. bed sheets. I was like, nope, <laughs> I, I would have survived exactly minus one day. <laughs> as soon as you told me that was a possibility, I would have never gotten on the airplane. But So what, what's the hardship equivalent for Kyrgyzstan? Cold. Just cold? Yeah, it's cold. If there was something I really learned uh, about the difference of cold between West and East, it was that in America, cold is a condition that exists between two warm places. And in Kyrgyzstan, cold just permeates everything. And uh, that's not to say there aren't warm places. You know, you can get Mm. in the sauna, you can get under the blankets, but somehow I just never felt like I was really shaking the cold all the way off. But you're from the South originally, so your barometer for what's cold might be a little... That's definitely true. (laughs) Yes, growing up in Louisiana, uh, yeah, I'm pretty cold sensitive, I have to say. But But, the first first winter was very difficult for me mm. uh, because... Part of it was I didn't know what to expect day by day. How, how much colder is this going to get and how much longer is this going to last? Once <laughs> I did it first year, the second year was just just so much easier mm-hmm. mentally to get through because it said, oh, yeah, this isn't so bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did this once before. This is fine. <laughs> Fair enough. And so what's something that you take back from Kyrgyzstan that, you know, because I feel like in, in all my trips and or most of my trips, I can come back from a different culture and say like, oh, this is something that those people just, they've nailed it, they do right. Is there something that you see in Kyrgyzstan or among the people of Kyrgyzstan that they do exceptionally well that you apply to your own life? Well, let's see. Probably the thing I most apply to my own life is cooking. I I like to cook and probably now most of what I cook is Kyrgyz food. Well, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to ask like, what is the food like there? So what do you, what are you cooking from Kyrgyzstan? Yeah. So, uh, so their food, it's, um, there's a lot of influence of, uh, from Russia, of course, since, uh, they were part of the Soviet Union for quite a long time. Uh, there's also a lot of dishes that, uh, though, are kind of claimed by both them and other Central Asian uh, cultures, uh, probably really are more of a Mongolian influence. Things like lagman, which are these thick uh, noodles that you can have either as part of a soup or uh, fried with meat and uh, vegetables mm-hmm. and things like this. Absolutely delicious. Some spices. Uh, most of the Kyrgyz food is not very spicy. Uh, lagman, fried lagman, is something that you can get uh, a bit of spice on, so I rather liked it. The um, my favorite thing from Kyrgyzstan is something called plov, which is uh, I don't know if it's more of a Russian dish or more of an Uzbek dish because um, the best plov, even Kyrgyz people will mostly admit that the best style of plov is the Uzbek style, uh, and what really changes that is actually the kind of rice. I, mm-hmm. The rice is this, it's this very interesting kind of brown rice, but. Um, uh, but I really love this. It's, 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 it's rice and they'll use, uh, mutton as the meat. Sometimes you can get, uh, beef. Uh, I'll often cook it with chicken, uh, and then lots of different vegetables in there. It's quite good. But the one dish that is definitely trademark Kyrgyz is called Besh Barmak, which means five fingers. So Besh is five Mm -hmm. and Barmak is fingers. And, uh, it's called this because you do eat it with your hands and it is a, a celebratory uh, dish that you would have at a wedding um, or, uh, I don't know, some other big occasion, birthday or something like this, uh, because the portions are made one sheep 
at a time. So <laughs> when you, you so you have a and there's a whole sacrificial ceremony uh, for the slaughter of the sheep, uh, and 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 you you put the sheep into this very very large bowl. Uh, or a um, pot and you boil it for some number of hours. And then when the meat is tender enough, you throw in noodles to kind of just like get the noodles soft to take five minutes. Uh, and then you pull the whole thing out uh, and you put the noodles on a plate. You take the sheep meat, cut it up into small uh, bite-sized pieces, put that over the top of the noodles, these big, 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 big plates. Uh, and then if you are at the honored table, uh, which would normally be reserved for the eldest uh, in the in the room, or for me, since I was the foreigner, so I always got to go sit at the uh, at the honored table with the with the elders. Uh, then your dish of besh barmak would have the sheep head put on top as well. So oh, yes, so this, and so and I I generally have three rules about food. I mean, I will eat anything, but I prefer not to have food that I have to touch with my hands. That is not too fatty, uh, and is and that doesn't look at me. <laughs> Sheep's head's looking at you. Sheep head is looking at me. I got to eat it with my hands, and they do make a point to make sure that when they cut the meat, unlike in uh, in the West where we'll cut the meat in such a way that we reduce the amount of fat that's on it, mm-hmm. there they cut the meat in such a way to maximize the amount of fat with every bite. And so it took me a lot of adjustment to figure out this dish. It it is not the type of thing that you are likely going to appreciate very much uh, your first time to try it. But if you live there for a couple of years, like I do, eventually you come around to figuring out that like hey, this is actually pretty good so the sheep the sheep said was pretty good the or the other parts of well the sheep. all of it yeah <laughs> yeah all of it you do you you, you do get honored with uh, the whole thing and yeah. um, oh, I'm sure getting the like the eyeballs and the brain I'm sure that's yeah, you know, that's, no, yeah, that's top they, class yes yes this this is all this is all part of it and I remember the first time that I witnessed the uh, sacrificial slaughter of the sheep I I think I became a vegetarian for two months or something <laughs> by, by by no particular will of my own. It was just I couldn't stomach it for a little while. I was speaking with my father about this uh, back in America, um, saying, Dad, uh, oh boy, I've just witnessed this thing and I don't know how Turns I'm out meat comes from myself. animals. Yeah, it who turns can... <laughs> out, yeah. These were living, breathing creatures once upon a time. I watched it happen. You wouldn't believe it. Well, he grew up on a goat dairy, so this was just nothing yeah. new to him. And he just laughed and he was like, well, son, you know, this is the way animals have been consumed by people for millennia so yeah. get used to it and always have the supermarket you're, you're or just you're just sheltered <laughs> not anymore and uh, so you say you're eating this i mean you live in germany now and you're eating this food here are you sacrificing goats down in the elchstadt or, or the old town no no i don't have the stomach to do this myself <laughs> I'll, I'll just stick to capitalism and uh <laughs> let my uh, dollar vote for the meat <laughs> well then something something i want to end on uh I mean, I, 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 much as I'd like to go to anywhere, I would like to go to Kyrgyzstan at some point, and I'm sure other people would like to go to Kyrgyzstan. How would you do that? You just fly into the capital city? Do you have to rent a car and drive around? Or is there, what's it like? How do you get around in Kyrgyzstan? Okay, I'm so glad you asked because, as it turns out, I'm definitely planning a return trip this year to Kyrgyzstan, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But, yes, fly in. Uh, you can't get there by boat. <laughs> you could. You can take a train from Moscow. I think it takes about... Two or three days to get there, but uh, you and you could drive it. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the most interesting things about Bishkek, it is a really international city because it is it is the center point. Somehow, it's the center point 
uh, between uh, Western Europe and Southeast Asia and Australia, where you have a lot of these world adventurers who go on these walkabouts or uh, walking tours of the world or what I met. I met one guy who's unicycling around the world. Uh, unicycling? Unicycling Why? around just, the world. Just go two wheel. I'm, I'm just, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, I met those people too, but unicycling, <laughs> he, 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 he's, wow, it's just incredible. But a lot of people will arrive to Bishkek and because there's kind of this long winter over the mountains mm-hmm. that makes it difficult to go over, if your goal is to do this whole distance uh, around the Asian continent by foot, by bicycle, by unicycle, uh, or whatever, then you will probably look at the mountains and say, all right, I'm going to wait till spring to cross that. And so you get all these international people that arrived to Bishkek in October, November, December, uh, who were able to make the rest of the journey until there, and then we'll just hunker down for a couple of months, get jobs, hang out for the winter. So I'm, I met all these incredible people from all over the world. And so, yeah, uh, I prefer to fly in, uh, and it is a long flight. The two best connecting cities uh, at that time were Istanbul and Moscow, but I think you can fly in from uh, Dubai now as well, daily flights. Um, so, so getting there isn't really a problem, mm-hmm. um, but if you're more adventurous, then grab a unicycle and uh, have at it. <laughs> or even so, I was the first thought I had was, if, if you have the time, you just said it takes three days by train from Moscow, and I imagine Bishkek is a rather small airport. What Might it be cheaper to fly, if you have the time, to fly to Moscow and take the train down? I don't know. I haven't really looked at that, but that is a very good question. That, that was my mm. initial thought to do that. Mm. I think that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty but cool. One, but once you get there, so what What do you do? Do you? Yeah, so um, Bishkek is uh, pretty well equipped to handle international guests. There's a lot of uh, hostels that are quite nice, uh, as well as a lot of hotels that really are not that expensive. The exchange rate from euros, pounds, or dollars is quite good. Uh, it's not a very expensive country. Uh, Airbnb is also operating there, at least at the at the moment. And even before Airbnb, there were lots of uh, families that had private apartments that mm-hmm. you could rent. So finding accommodations is, I think, pretty pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the city has a lot of modern amenities, theaters, uh, performing arts theaters, as well as just movie theaters, uh, shopping, uh, very large bazaars, the Osh Bazaar in Bishkek uh, is, I believe it's the largest open air bazaar in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, because it's kind of a crossroads with China and the West as well, so there's a lot of commerce that comes through Kyrgyzstan, and of course a lot of that ends up in Bishkek. So uh, there's a lot of things that you can do there. There's tons of tour operators, and it's pretty easy to grab a bus or hire a taxi to take you basically anywhere in the Mm -hmm. country. Uh, Taxis are usually shared taxis, so you just pay for your seat. You wait for the taxi to fill up, and then you go. Uh, And it costs you like 20 bucks to get across the country or something like that. Um, The most popular tourist destination is the Issaquil region to the east. takes just a couple hours to get there. Along the way, uh, you'll hit me to fork in the road that if you continue straight east, you'll end up at the lake. And if you turn south, you'll go straight up into the mountains into an area called Narin. Which is where the most um, hi- the highest quality handicrafts from Kyrgyzstan come from. Uh, handicrafts are now being produced pretty much all over the country, but this is kind of the area that traditionally was really producing their rugs and handicrafts and uh, their sheep wool products uh, since the beginning of time. Um, and if you if you were to go west out of uh, Bishkek, uh, which few people do, but I would encourage you to try, uh, you can end up over in Talas, which is where I lived. It's not much of a tourist destination, but it would certainly get you off the beaten path. Um, <laughs> And uh, though I don't have any experience with this, the southern part of the country in the cities of Jalalabad and Osh, um, a lot of people really like it in the south. But I, but I've not been there. Um, 
myself, so I can't really speak to it. But everybody I know who's been to the South says it's fantastic, but it's almost like a different country. And just for context, when you say so-and-so to the east of mountains, Narin, which to me that sounded like an elf lair or something from Lord of the Rings. Um, but anyway, when you say that it's a tourist destination, I imagine to a lesser extent of like the Eiffel Tower is a tourist oh, destination. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Like still pretty, still pretty relatively quiet, lesser traveled. Absolutely. The uh, Kyrgyzstan is really, uh, it's really should be an attractive place for people who are interested in having a bit of an adventure. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very safe country, uh, but you will not land in in Bishkek and find all the signs to be in Russian, Kyrgyz and English. So you're you're going to have to figure things out a little bit on your own and, you know, be open to speaking with people and doing hand gestures and all this. Um, It's it's a really great place to be uh, if you like nature. Uh, if you like these kind of traditional uh, sports, horse-based sports and archery, falconry, stuff like this. is uh, Falconry. <laughs> falconry, absolutely. It's a big thing. Um, so you, you get a, in a lot more of these things. So, uh-huh. uh, you, you know, I wouldn't go there expecting, you know, the Paris experience for sure. It's a, it's a different experience, but it's, it's a fantastic one. And it's very authentic. Um, which brings me to another point. This the, the, the culture of the country, it's very nomadic. So people are living in yurts in the mountainside. Uh, during the summer times, uh, that when they take their livestock up into the mountains to graze, um, uh, and, and, and you can find your way uh, into these yurts as well. Uh, you know, there's tour companies that will set these up, and you can go mm. sleep, you know, sleep for a few na- days in the mountains and do some of these horseback tours and biking tours and motorcycle tours or whatever that are really fantastic. Um, uh, but along with that nomadic lifestyle uh, comes a lot of really interesting nomad sports. And in fact, so this is why I want to go back to Kyrgyzstan this year, is that in September 2018, uh, Kyrgyzstan will host the World Nomad Games, uh, which are basically the Olympics for nomadic games. And they've hosted the games before. Uh, The last time it just looked incredible. Lots of fanfare, um, but, uh, you know, lots of beautiful colored silks and, you know, very dramatic landscapes. And you have horse racing and wrestling and uh, a a game called Kokkuru, which has been played for about 8,000 years. It's the oldest lasting sport on the planet. Uh, And it's like a combination of football meets... um, uh, Oh, how do you say? Uh, it's 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 like, well, it's like football played on horses, but instead of a ball, you have a sheep carcass. <laughs> so just look it up. I, mean, I, I can yeah. visualize it. Yeah, very it's, very it's, simple. It's, it's it's a really aggressive, hard game, but watching it is certainly impressive. It's not like anything you've ever seen before, and uh, the winning team gets to take the sheep home and feast. So uh, well tenderized. But the um, but the World Nomadic Games are really I think that they seem really incredible and they're very much an international affair. It's not just like Kyrgyzstan and Mongolia and Kazakhstan or something like this. The last Nomad Games uh, brought teams from Texas um, and Argentina and Brazil, and so you really get these teams from all over the world uh, coming up and competing in in these types of sports. And um, and I just think that seeing these sports in that context and particularly in that atmosphere, I think that would be a really special occasion and a lot less stressful, presumably than trying to go to the Olympics or something. So, yeah. So my plan, definitely my big travel goal for this year is to get back to Kyrgyzstan again for the world nomad games in September. Well, listen, I really appreciate you stopping by to talk about Kyrgyzstan and you've certainly sold me on, on heading down, heading over there to 
maybe check out some Kokoro. It's my <laughs> it's my pleasure. And really, I have to say, you're doing a really good job remembering and pronouncing these words correctly. I'm just I'm just trying to really get into that Kyrgyzstan podcast niche. I, I'm not I, whatever happens in the states happens. Whatever happens in English speaking Europe happens. But if I can get that Kyrgyzstan market on the podcast channel, then then I think I'm set for life. You'll be locked in. <laughs> Again, that was Judson Moore. My thanks to him for coming on Without a Path. As always, you can get the show notes with all the relevant links at withoutapath.com. Or you can skip ahead and just go directly to JudsonLMoore.com where you can see some of his travel stories and his experiences. Uh, most importantly, you can get the Kyrgyzstan, his Kyrgyzstan travel guide at JudsonLMoore.com. So if you happen to be swinging by Kyrgyzstan, as one does, you can have everything planned out by somebody who spent some time living there. Once this goes up, I'll be off for a couple of weeks. I'm heading to Morocco, spending a week there, working my way up to Spain and then spending a week in southern Spain until I get up to Madrid. So again, I'll be off for a couple of weeks, but I did want to put in a quick announcement in case we don't have another episode before this next event. I'll be speaking at the Berlin Travel Festival. That's going to be going on the weekend of March 9th, and I'll be speaking on the afternoon of Sunday, March 11th about off the bean path travel, how, what it is, and how you can do it yourself. And so if that sounds interesting to you, we've got links to the travel festival at withoutapath.com as well in the show notes. All right, that's it. I, I think we got it. And all in one take, no less. That's a lie. But one more time, my thanks to Judson Moore for coming on the show. My thanks to you, as always, for listening. And until next time. He says, no santo que me la asfaltar.